All right, well, uh, I'm continuing the lesson from last week, and I focused last week on the thief on the cross. <clears throat> One of the great, great paradigms in the Bible demonstrating what, what Jesus does and how he does it. And even when we would say there is no hope, there is no hope, it's too late. Uh, God never says that, and you see that in his perfect example. And we talked about uh, what the lessons from the thief on the cross are, and I spoke already about the first thing, is that it was a lesson in hope, meaning that it would, as long as, as there is breath and Jesus intervenes, there is always hope. Even when we pronounce it's too late, it's, there's no hope, well, there is hope. And then there's the lesson in conversion. You see what real conversion is. What happens when somebody truly becomes conversion, converted, gives their heart? You see the absolute fundamental change that you see in that person, and we saw it here. And then we also talked about the lesson in courage, the, the courage that it took uh, when you're in front of a snarling mob uh, who is uh, uh, hurling insults and persecutions at Jesus in every way from the religious elite right through to the soldiers, and yet this man uh, recognized who Jesus was and had the courage to step up. And I challenged each and every one of you to have that same courage when you're at dinner or at golf or at your country club and you're holding back because you're a little reticent. You don't have the courage to speak to somebody about who Jesus is and telling them who you are. Well, there's your example, folks. Step up. Do what God wants you to do. And so today, uh, I have three more uh, issues I wanted to talk about relative to the thief on the cross. Uh, and I told you last week, one of the things that I grew up learning uh, was he was called the good thief right? The good thief, which I, when I, as I studied for this and wrote about it, I kind of laughed at myself, the good thief. Well, the point was there was no good thief. He was a thief. He was blaspheming Jesus minutes before, hurling insults, until suddenly, suddenly, as he, as he focused on the, the desolate nature of his life, and, and God gave him a, a, the Holy Spirit to look within him, he recognized he desperately needed a Savior, and it's at that point when he recognized he desperately needed a Savior and turned his life over to Jesus right there on the cross that, that uh, at that moment, at that moment, he became the good thief. And one of the lessons that I told you about, which I think is important in this, you remember this, because I know some of you when, you, when you speak to people about Jesus, you have a certain paradigm in your mind. You've got to take them down the Roman road, Right? you got to get them to say yes to a whole series of questions, right? Yes to this, check it, check it, check it, check it. Check. Am I right? You know, you, those of you people know that. And then, of course, you got to seal it with water baptism, right? Well, guess what? None of that happened on the cross. And Jesus said, today, today you will be with me in paradise, today. And so all I tell you about is yes, I believe in all those things, but at the end of the day, none of it is critical. The only thing critical is an acceptance of who Jesus is, a recognition that we are lost and that he has become our Savior. And so this is what this lesson is about. And so continue to focus on it. And so the next point I wanted to mention to you is that this becomes a lesson in humility. And what do I mean by that? Well, here's the thing. When the thief looked at Jesus and saw who Jesus was, what did he say? I deserve what I'm getting. He, he chastised the other thief. We deserve what we're getting, but this man does not. 
In other words, he, he suddenly became unbelievably humble about a review of his own setting. We deserve to die. We're not good people. We broke the law. Uh, and, and you see this. And so one of the things that I want to tell you is this. There's not a single example in Scripture where God used a proud and arrogant man. Not one. I can't find one. But when you see people who suddenly become humbled and broken, uh, you're, 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 you're just taken up with God and you see it. Uh, and that's what it is. A humble person, a humble person reflects the essence of Jesus Christ. They're not espousing themselves. They're not lifting themselves up uh, as being worthy. None of us are worthy. None of us are worthy. Every time I get up here and preach, the first thing I think of is, oh, God, how, how blessed you, you've been to me to allow me to do this. I, have, I don't deserve this. I didn't live the kind of life that allows me to come up here. For years, I would never teach. I would never teach uh, in Bible school or I'd never t- uh, speak in church because I knew I wasn't a righteous man. Well, do you understand? You got to be careful about that because here's the thing. None of us are righteous. So if we wait for the point where we're suddenly righteous enough, then you know what? We'll never get off our seat. Okay, we'll never get off our seat. But the point is to remain humble, to remain where you are, that God God will use you. And one of the essences of his humility is that, look what he says to Jesus. He doesn't ask for any special favor. All he says is, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Will you remember me? That's all. Will you remember me? It's the most humble application that you could ever say. I mean, uh, and Jesus returns it with the highest honor. Yes, not only am I going to remember you, dear friend, I'm going to bring you into my kingdom today. You will be in paradise. In one hour, you will be walking with me in the most glorious place that God has ever created. Yes, I will remember you. That's my promise. Now, here's the thing. I want you to juxtapose this with two of the disciples. Uh, And I want you to turn to Mark chapter 10. This is rather surprising, but it shouldn't be. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Two disciples now walking with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. They'll be with him three years, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And I want you to see, (laughs) I want you to see the opposite end of humility. And you would think walking with Jesus you would be humbled. and eh, not so quick. Which I believe gives us hope, right? Verse 35, Mark 10, verse. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Oh, boy. That's a pregnant moment, huh? I want you to do whatever we ask, we want you to do. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Uh, and they said, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Well, there it is. Not too big. Not too big. Jesus will be on his throne. James will be on the right. John will be on the left. Oh, yeah. Wow, absolutely. Can you get a better seat right there at the kingdom of God, right next to the creator of the universe? Uh, and, and so look how Jesus responds. I mean, really, I juxtapose this to the thief on the cross. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am Baptist? 
baptized with? We can, they answered. Oh, yeah, you can. Uh, and Jesus said, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been uh, prepared. Um, and boy, what a great statement that is, isn't it? Um, and and as, as distinguished from the thief who said, Lord, remember me. Lord, remember me. All right? And, and so what a great example this is. Uh, and if you want to see the theological predicate that speaks to this issue, look at 1 Peter, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. <clears throat> Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Humble yourself. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. And that's the example. Don't brag about yourself or have a, a, an extolled uh, position about yourself. Humble yourself and let God lift you up, uh, because that's, that's an incredible lesson. Look also at Romans chapter 12, if you would. Romans chapter 12, Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Uh, and so what does this mean? This is certainly applicable to Christians in a church environment because many of us uh, have exalted views of what our service ought to be. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's like people who believe that they're called to preach. They're called to preach. And at the same time, they've only been asked to be ushers, all right, or greeters. Uh, and all I would say is this to you, that if you've been called to preach, God will find that out. Okay, you don't have to worry about making sure that you've marketed yourself, all right? That you've advertised who you are. You don't have to do that because God will find it out and He will elevate you and He will seek you out. Humble yourself. That's the key to to a, a successful Christian walk. Humility in every aspect of our life, pointing the way to Christ. When people start telling you how great you are, you just bow your head and you just say, "The Lord, the Lord has blessed me. The Lord has been with me. Whatever He has given me." Uh, you know, it is. And I told you that these lessons I learned early on in my mother and father when, when I would go over to their house early on and I would have breakfast with them as I was a young lawyer and I would, you know, tell them about all these great successes I had and my father would say, thank God, thank God, thank God. And it would irritate me. I've told you this before. It would irritate me because I wasn't getting enough credit. You understand? As only as I got older, I recognized I didn't deserve any credit. All right, when we, are, when we have given our lives to Jesus Christ, everything we have, everything you are, everything you will have is from him. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. It's from him. Don't ever forget it. There's nothing that you have, no talent, no gift, no insight, no intellect, nothing that you have that has not been given to you by Jesus. Uh, and and you, are, you have been blessed. So don't go lifting yourself up. You bow in humility and we walk with the Lord. Uh, now, uh, the next point I want to say about the cross is a lesson in concern. Uh, and, and to me, this is another, an another thing, is that uh, the thief was interested in the kingdom of God. Isn't that amazing? I mean, here he is on the cross. 
uh, with all the pain and suffering that it was, and yet somehow he recognized that there would be a life after this life. And he recognized that the man next to him, who was going to die in the same way that he was, somehow had the keys to that. And so uh, Jesus had preached before, often, about the fact that the kingdom of God was at hand. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. I want you to see this. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to, to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So most likely, this thief had somehow heard about this, uh, because obviously Jesus had become famous. He heard about it, and so Jesus talked about the establishment of his kingdom. Um, and so uh, the thief, somehow, it had filed away in his mind, uh, and at an appropriate time, when he was inspired by God, he had the concern to recognize, I want to be in the kingdom. I want to be there with the Lord. Uh, and, and God makes that promise. He will, make, he will do that for us. Uh, and so this becomes important. Now, the scripture makes it very clear that when we obey God, when we are saved, we will be part of the kingdom of God. That's the promise. We will be there. We will walk with God. And so the question is, are we, are we, do we have that level of interest in the kingdom of God now? All right? Do we have that? And it becomes important. And so uh, this is another issue you need to point yourself to. And why do I say this? I say this because even to those people who are saved, I always make the demarcation be in salvation between day one and day two, meaning this. Day one is through nothing that you've done, God has just saved you, all right? You've just recognized you needed a savior. You see, the thief on the cross, he's in day one. But if he had come off that cross, uh, and he had been saved from that death. Everything that took place afterward would be day two. How is he walking with Jesus? What is he doing with what Jesus gave him? How is he advancing the kingdom of God? How concerned is he about God's people? You understand? That's where you are. That's where we are. This is in our walk with Jesus Christ. And why is that important? It's important not because you're not saved. It's important because these are the very things Jesus is going to judge you on. What did you do with the things that I gave you? What did you do with the lessons that I taught? How much did you care? How much did you love? And that's what Jesus is going to review for us. It's all about a lesson in concern. Uh, and so I give that to you to inspire you that, yes, you're saved, but now you walk. And every day you continue to walk. And then there's a lesson in mercy, a lesson in mercy by Jesus, meaning what? Here he is, and you think about it. Uh, all Christ had to do was look at this person and, and say, as we would have said, you're a loser. You're a loser. Look at you. You're cursing me out. You're blaspheming me. All right. You, you've lived a miserable life. Uh, you, are, you are getting what you deserve. And yet, you see, that's not Jesus. Our Savior is merciful. Our God is merciful. When I hear people speak uh, blasphemously about God, don't understand that our God, our God loves more than we could ever understand love. All right? He bankrupted heaven for you. He took Jesus Christ, the creative agent, and took him and put him in this world. What do you think that was like to have that taken out of heaven? All right? Uh, that affiliation that God the Father had with God the Son. He did it because of you, because he had a sense of mercy for this, this fallen world that had been fallen from the time of Adam. 
and only because of Jesus Christ could we be saved. And so you see this lesson uh, throughout, the, throughout Scripture. And, and so we see it time and time again uh, in, in other ways. And all of the great people in the Bible, they all had warts from Abraham to Moses and David. We go on and on and on. None of them were, were perfect people by any stretch of the imagination. David, for sure, is one of the great examples of this. Uh, and we know, we know about his life and how he, he got involved in murder and that relationship with Bathsheba. Uh, and you see all that, and yet God had mercy on him. God had mercy on him. And so that, that's the thing. And so we, we need to be able to say, yes, Lord, I recognize you have mercy on me. I thank you so much. I know I'm a failure, Father. I know I don't live the way that you want me to live. I'm trying to do the best I can. But here's the thing. I saw the thief on the cross, and I know what you did to that thief on the cross. I know there's hope for me, uh, and I know you will have mercy on me, and he will. Uh, and so uh, that's the great thing. And so you see all of this come together. All of these issues come together on the cross, on the cross with Jesus Christ. What a powerful example. And so we can start at least the lesson that I had for today for you, uh, which is the placard, the placard on the cross that Pilate put there when Jesus was, was crucified. And you know that he on the placard were the words... Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, John mentions the fact that the placard was placed above the cross when Jesus was crucified. Uh, now, what John tells us that the other gospel writers do not tell us is that the placard was written in three languages. Isn't that amazing? Written in three languages. It was, it was written in Latin, it was written in Greek, and it was written in Aramaic. Uh, and to me, this is an interesting uh, uh, paradigm. Uh, because what it tells us is that while Jesus is dying uh, as a Jewish king, nevertheless, he had a relationship to the existing world. And so there it is, written in Greek, the, the language of, of the intellectuals, all right, the language of the philosophers, written in Latin, the language of power, the empire of Rome, and, and effectively written in Aramaic, uh, the language of the Jews, uh, the, the, the relationship of religion. And so what you see here is Pilate, again, acting, acting as a pagan, but clearly inspired by God, is indicating that Jesus Christ, even though he is dying in this way, seemingly in a, a failed position, is in fact the king of the entire world. Uh, and, you know, the Jewish community was incensed about this uh, because they went, the high priest went back to Jesus, went back to Pilate, excuse me, and said, we, we don't like that, what you've written. We want you to add, he said he was king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've done is done. What I've done is done. And so they had, they had to live with it, and it's, it's amazing. Uh, and so uh, what's interesting here is how all of this then wraps up right in John's gospel, right from the beginning. Uh, and, and I identify that in my outline for you, because if you think of the prologue, the opening prologue in the Gospel of John, uh, what it said was, the true light that gives Jesus was the true light that gives light to every man that was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. They, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become 
children of God. That's, that's 1 John Gospel, uh, verses 9 to 12. And so John is indicating that the provision for sin, uh, for salvation, for which he is writing in the gospel is not just for the Jew, uh, but is also for all men and women. It is universal. Uh, and so what a great, great uh, hope that is. Later on in that same chapter, uh, the John the Baptist, uh, his, his ministry is unfolded, and, and we see his, his uh, testimony about Jesus. Turn to, turn to uh, the first chapter of John, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that amazing? He didn't say who takes away the sin from the Jews. He said who takes away the sin of the world. This, this theme occurs again throughout the Gospel of John. It occurs in chapter 3 when Jesus saves Nicodemus. Uh, and, and he says there in John chapter 3, and this is good for you to remember this as you speak to people who are coming to salvation. John chapter 3, verse 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Underline the word whoever, okay? Without limitation. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So here it is. Understand this. When people say about God, God is not merciful. God is mean-spirited. And what does it say there? You are already condemned. You are a dead man walking. But for the intervention of God himself through Jesus Christ, you would be lost forever. It is the mercy of God that he gives you salvation, the opportunity for, you, for salvation. And so you see this, the, the fact that Jesus is the light uh, in an awful dark world. You see it again in chapter 6 of the gospel, where Jesus is called the bread of life, the very act of sustaining life, the bread of life, given for the life of the world. In chapters 8 and 9, Jesus is again called the light of the world. In chapter 10, he is called the good shepherd, whose task it is to gather his own out of Judaism and the other foes of the world. Meaning what? You've been a Jew. You've been the chosen people. But guess what? You are not being saved by the substitutionary sacrifice of animals. Now you will be saved once and for all for the death of God himself on the cross. Now you need to accept him. He came to save the Jews first and the rest of the world right after that. So you see all this. And so John demonstrates clearly through the life of Jesus Christ that God offers salvation to the Greek and to the Roman and to the entire world. He saved the thief on the cross, and at the same time he saved the thief on the cross, he saved the centurion at the bottom of the cross. Uh, and, and so you see it. He's, uh, he proclaims his grace uh, to the rich, his grace to the poor, his, his love to the high, his love to the low. There is no party that is exempted. Make sure you understand this message and, and articulate it clearly. Whosoever, whosoever, without limitation, all right? 
I love, I love our friends that come from the reform aspect of, of theology, all right, who believe that God predestines and determines who is saved and who is not, and I love them. Uh, but frankly, I, don't, I can't interpret the word whosoever to be predestination. Whosoever is whosoever. It is as far as the east is from the west. Whosoever, Greek, Roman, Gentile, or Jew, whoever it is can be saved. From the thief on the cross to the centurion at the bottom of the cross. Uh, and, and effectively, God says, look at the human race. I see who you are. I know where you've been. You've been lost since Adam fell. There's only one way you can come and be with me through eternity, and that is through uh, Jesus Christ. So it's, it's such an important thing. And so here's the thing. Here's, here's the thing. The cross reveals men and women as we are. It reveals the nature of who we are. You see the soldier's nature at the bottom. This truly was a righteous man. You see the nature of the crowds who were bitter and perse- persecuting uh, and, and blasphemous. Uh, you see the faithful women at the bottom of the cross. Uh, praying for God and having their hearts torn. Uh, And you see John, who is writing this gospel, it's the cross, the cross. That's what Jesus said. I will be a divider, all right? I will be a divider. There will be people who will come and love me and love what I do, but there will be other people who will vituperate it and separate themselves. Yes, you're right. Families will be divided, mothers and fathers, Brothers and sisters, why? Because evil cannot stand the light. You understand? Evil cannot stand the light. And when the darkness sees the light, it repudiates it. All right? And so never let us fall into this trap. Never let us fall into this trap. I pray for each and every one of you that you have the courage to speak up about Jesus, that you let people know who you are. You know, and this week I was out in Arizona uh, with a group of lawyers that I've known for 30 years, a group of, that I've led as president for 12 of those years. Uh, and whenever they ask me, what am I doing? You know, the easy thing would be for me to say, well, I'm still practicing law. I run the law firm. But I don't say that. Amen. I don't say it. What do I say? I'm advancing the gospel of Jesus. Amen. I go, Amen. I bet... You never thought you'd see that. <laughs> I said, I bet you never thought you'd see that. You know? But that's the point. I pray that you have the courage to stand up and do it. Look, I didn't always have the courage. I told you the stories. We would go out two times a year to a restaurant with my dad, you know, for a birthday celebration, and my father would say this very elaborate prayer Christ, oh God. And I go, oh God, Lord, you know, the, the Hittites are up in the mountains. Oh God, no, I'm, I'm exaggerating. But you know, my father would make certain that there wasn't a sir, anybody in the restaurant who wouldn't know we were praying, all right? And I'm in godless New Jersey, all right? We're like the only evangelical people for a thousand miles. There's nobody else there. And I'm just, I'm just got my head, oh God, I'm, I'm like... Yeah. You know, I'm like nine years old. I'm looking around. You understand? Well, you know what? Good. Good for my father. He understood it. That's what you need to do. That's what I'm inspiring you to do today. That's what the thief on the cross did. And you want to know something? If it's good enough for the thief on the cross, then it's good enough for you. Amen? Amen. Amen.
close. Lord, I thank you for the, the lesson that you've given us, the inspiration, Father, of the thief on the cross. Father, the nature that there's always hope, what real conversion means, and what it means to have courage to stand up for you. Father, I pray for my people. I pray that each and every one of them is inspired today to stand up in some way for you, to speak out about you, to let a lost world know where there is hope, Father. I ask you to bless them and protect them this week and bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.